0: Well, good morning again, everyone. I do hope that you are well-rested with that extra hour of sleep. I'm sure that you all took advantage of that, as I normally do. I'm sure if you have kids, I, that they their internal clocks just adjust to that naturally, and you know, they weren't up a little bit earlier than they needed to be today. But you know, this morning, as we come together, um, being a Communion Sunday, it doesn't always afford us uh, a lot of time to... Ease into a message, uh, so today we're just going to kind of jump right into it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter seven today. Um, I don't have a PowerPoint for us today, um, but we're just going to spend some good time in the Word as we read through this, continuing in our series of keeping in step with the Spirit, trying to to read these passages here in Romans of six, seven, and eight with that lens and, and understand how, as believers, um, we can improve our walks, being closer to him. All right, so Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. for while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if you have not yet if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin So that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good did that which is good then bring death to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin for I do not understand my own actions who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve myself; so I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Father, as we go to your word today, I just ask that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would help us to connect um, to some of these deeper areas in our lives, where you where you need to come, Lord where we need deliverance, where we need healing. Help us to understand these relationships today. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so kind of a quick overview for us a little bit. As I said last week, Paul seems to work in groups with these chapters in Romans. They kind of build off of each other, speaking of different relationships that people have, right, in reference to Christ. In chapter 6, he talked about the believers' relationship to sin. In chapter 7, it is their relationship to the law. In chapter 8, it's going to be towards God. And Paul kind of breaks down the former self and the new self in each chapter as well. In chapter 6, he talked about the enslavement to sin and then how they are no longer slaves to sin. In chapter 7, he's talking about how they were obligated to the law. But now they are no longer under the law, obligated to keep the law. He mentions the dangers as well. In chapter 6, he warned them not to become slaves to sin, not to present their members to it. And in chapter 7, he warns of the dangers of trying to overcome sin by thinking that they can keep the law to do something like that. And then he also ends each chapter with a high note, with a believer's responsibility. Chapter 6 talks about how it is the believer's responsibility to present their members as instruments of righteousness to God. And in chapter 7, it is understanding how to trust and obey God because that he alone enables us to overcome the flesh. You know, chapter 7 is one of those tricky chapters. It's one of those tricky chapters because it is such a reality for us as believers. We can feel the weight of of this chapter we can feel the struggle that paul is describing and it could be very common for us within this chapter um, he's laying out another argument against legalism in chapter six he was speaking against license now he's going to be talking about legalism again this is the attitude which is going to conform to a code or the letter of the law as it says there in verse six um, it is an attitude that tries to impose behaviors and standards um, in terms of what we believe God is going to agree with. It's an attitude that talks about how we can be justified or sanctified by keeping these rules and these regulations. Again, it's a danger that Paul is speaking to the church about in many of his letters. Um, you know, when we look at this whole chapter, many times we focus on that, that last part, the, the do and the do not section. That's kind of where we tend to focus because that's where the struggle lies. But he starts off with an analogy for his readers, which is very rare for Paul to do. He doesn't use a lot of analogies in his writing. Um, and there's an interesting observation that I found. Um, I don't know if you'll think it's interesting, but I do. Um, As he starts off, he's addressing his audience, and he says that he is speaking to the brothers who know law. Sometimes, when you're translating from Greek, you'll add in articles just to make it make sense. And when you see that it's written in your Bibles, perhaps as it says, brothers who know the law, you can think that he's talking about the Mosaic law. But remember, he is speaking to the Romans. He is speaking to people who know law. They are surrounded by laws and regulations. That is how their society thrives, through authority, through rule. Think of the centurion when he comes to Jesus. And he says, just say the word and I know he'll be healed because you have authority. You are the law. You understand this. So they live a life of legalism, of rule keeping. And he is speaking to those that would understand this type of thinking, that would be bound by the law who would understand that the law is binding to those who are alive but not necessarily to those who would be dead so he's continuing this theme from chapter six of how chapter six verse 14 suggests that the person living under the law is dominated by sin right so he's telling the readers for them to have this realistic release from sin that they need to be dead to sin which is what he is professing in chapter 6 that there also needs to then be this equal release from the law and he uses this analogy of a widow who is freed from her marriage by the death of her spouse the wife represents the believer the husband represents the law so just as the widow is not under any obligation to her deceased spouse. The believer is no longer any, under any obligation to the law as a means for justification or sanctification once the law dies. Now, as with most analogies, it breaks down in some areas. They're used to help us give us some insight and some understanding. And he, he speaks correctly there in the next verse. It's not the law who dies, but it's the believer who dies to the law. Um, but the point that he makes is still valid. Just as the widow who loses his spouse is free to marry another, a believer, because they have died to the law, is free to belong to Christ. It says that in verse 6. Now, to avoid confusion, Paul then explains the purpose of the law. Because it would be easy to gain this false interpretation of what the law stands for. It would be easy to say how the law is so closely related to sin here in these passages that people could believe that the law is evil. You know, since we died to sin and the law both, is the law sin? Because he's, not, he's telling the people that they're no longer under the law, that they've died to the law. People can then begin to think, what's the use of the law? How do you answer that question? I like uncomfortable pauses. But, you know, when you think about these types of things, where do we go to in the Word? How do we defend our beliefs? You know, you can obviously look in verse 7, but even before that, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law brings the knowledge of sin. It is not sin itself. And of course, in verse 7, he asks that question, is the law then sin? And you have that same strong negative that he uses in chapter 6. So let's take this analogy a little bit further, a little bit deeper. Let's say that you are the bride in that situation. Your husband is the law. What type of relationship do you think that that's going to look like? I mean, he seems to be a little controlling, a little demanding, He confronts you every day with a list of things that you need to do in the day. And it needs to be done perfectly. No havesies, no close enough type of attitudes, no excuses. If you fail in any of the things, you'd probably receive shame at your failure. You would have guilt because you failed. You would be made aware of your failure. There are no explanations in order to defend yourself. You must do the list of things perfectly. Because the law, your husband, is perfect. Now, I'm not in ignorance here. I understand within marriages, there could be those types of controlling atmospheres. And these types of probings and analogies could trigger things for you. I understand that marriages suffer in terms of communication and expectations. So maybe you can identify with this in a very deep and personal way. Maybe you could be triggered by some, some of these types of thoughts. Hold on because hope is coming. You know, in this analogy, every day you would fail at completing the list of things perfectly. To add insult to injury, there's a greater demand for you to continue to do the things perfectly the very next day. Can you imagine that type of household and the pressure to perform? Now, I know husbands and wives both face pressures and stresses in different forms. And sometimes we put these pressures on our spouses. But in this type of a relationship, the frustration would mount, the pressure would build, and you could lash out in anger or fear or in revolt As these failures pile up. And I think Paul describes that feeling in verse 5. Where he says, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. Now it doesn't mean that the law is causing the bride to sin. Instead, because the law is perfect, anything that is put up against it will pale in comparison. Where we realize that we don't measure up. That there's this cycle then that happens of shame and guilt within that relationship. And once the law dies in verse 3, I think that the bride would probably have a bigger sigh of relief rather than tears of mourning for that life to be done where she would no longer have to face that condemnation in the evening at the many failures throughout the day instead now she is free life under the law is a life of never-ending rules regulations and performance and it brings frustrations whereas with the death of the law the bride is then free to be joined to christ in a relationship of love and delight and the difference cannot be more obvious now again Paul wants to highlight the importance of the law because it brings knowledge of sin. And he doesn't want to get, have people get the wrong idea. He loves the law. You know, perhaps you've heard it described this way. The law is like an MRI machine where it reveals a tumor. You know, the law, the machine itself is not bad just because it reveals something bad. It points out what needs to be fixed. In the same way, the law points out sin. It's not sinful just because it exposes it. As he says in verse 12, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is righteous. It is we who are not. So how do we handle the law? How do we handle sin in our present lives? Because as we talked about last week, we are to be dead to sin. We've died to it. And then we read passages like this, and every believer can feel the truth and the weight of this passage, the sinful human nature that is still among us, even though we are told to be dead to it, we still sin. So what gives? How do we walk properly? You know, I want us to sit with some of these questions as we contemplate everything that we've been going over in the last three months in terms of keeping in step with the Spirit. Because this type of passage is where the rubber meets the road. The question of how. The question that many of us struggle through. How do we walk in the right way? And I want to acknowledge and make a few things aware to us. First off, it is not uncommon for everyone to have these types of feelings, to have these types of questions. Everyone struggles in this way. Understanding the battles that are going on. You know, when I read this passage, I oftentimes make it about my own personal struggles, how I'm walking with the Lord, how it, it's very like a mirror in my life. And it can add to your frustrations as you dwell on these types of things. Because we try to take the steps, we try to walk correctly, but it seems like there are strongholds that just won't be overcome. Overcome that you can't do it, and we don't know where to turn. It's a common cycle of questioning. It's a common thing that everybody goes through in their hearts and minds. Secondly, we need to try to understand the law a little bit better in our life. The law is a reflection of the purity of God. It outlines the standards of behavior that his character would just deem normal. This is how God behaves. This is how God would, would act in our situations. Where the law fails, what Paul is pointing out and highlighting in these texts, why we need to die to the law, is because the law cannot bring anyone to regeneration and salvation. So what Paul is saying is that when he tells the readers to die to the law, he is telling them to to die to the efforts that we take to be justified by completing this law, by keeping this law. Because justification comes through Christ alone, not through law-keeping. Paul doesn't say that the law is less true, not important, because it still reflects the nature of God. It outlines his standards, and it's still relevant for the believers today. But we die to the law We are not under it anymore because we understand that it cannot save us. Only Jesus can. So now we are under the law of Christ or the law of faith, which we talked about in Galatians. So hopefully we can understand how we're not slaves to sin, that we've died to the law, that it no longer dominates us, and we are to no longer struggle to perform. At least we shouldn't. We're not supposed to do that. And again, that's where it's hard to constantly remember the grace that has been won for us because we see that there is still sin in our lives. We see that it still has a strong attraction for us. We're drawn and we're tempted because of our human nature, which is still sinful. We've been given a new spirit. Our minds are constantly being renewed, but the flesh is still hanging on. And the flesh is defined as sin nature. It's how we want to understand that. One example that I read this week reminded me of the movie Shawshank Redemption. Great movie about prison life and things like that. Filmed in Mansfield, Ohio. Shout out to Ohio there. Um, But, you know, it's very familiar with that. To where, you know, if you're a prisoner, you have rules. You're behind bars. You're in bondage. You have a lifestyle that you're used to. And then when you're let out of that atmosphere, when you're free, you're no longer behind those bars. You no longer have to listen to those rules that you've listened to your whole life. But once we get out, it's almost like we don't know how to be free. And it's like we want to go back to that lifestyle because even with all the mess, even being behind bars and in bondage, there was familiarity there. There was control there. We don't know how to live free. Freedom, liberty can be difficult to understand. And the struggle that's written here describes this balance, like I said, that we experience many times as born-again believers who still struggle with the sin nature. We don't understand our actions meaning we know that it's sin, but we don't understand why we still do it sometimes. Why am I still selfish? Why am I still jealous, adulterous, angry? I thought all that got taken care of, God. Why do I still struggle in this way? And again, as we combine what we've been going over, remember the power of sin was defeated in our present lives. Sin itself is conquered. Jesus was victorious and you know, that is already defeated for the final battle. But from now until then, there's a time period where it's still going to be difficult. Meaning, it is in those individual moments in our days where we need to lean and trust in the power of God to obey what he says. Now, could God just take the temptations away? Sure. But he also tells us in his word to trust and obey. We need to grow in our understanding of how in those moments of obedience and trust, it can build our faith. It can build our understanding of who God is and understand his love for us. I think of Jesus in the desert, how he handles the temptations. You know, looking in Romans chapter 7, verse 16, Now, if I, I presently, Paul, the new man, is speaking there in the context, if I do not do what I want, you know, here he is implying that he wants to do the will of God. But instead, he is doing the things that he hates, meaning sin. He is aware, he is conscious of his sinning ways. He is aware even deeper that it is the sin within him that is doing this action. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about some of these deeper things with sin. Um, How many times in our lives we're just addressing the symptoms. We're just addressing the things that are on the surface, but we're not dealing with the root issues, the core issues. Um, Where in the wounds of our life, for some reason, we haven't invited Jesus into those to get healing, to get deliverance. We don't deal... With, with the lies that have been constantly told to us throughout our entire life. Instead, we just deal with the surface things and make Christianity about behavior modification rather than that transforming nature that the Spirit is supposed to do in our lives. Remember also in that same message when I challenged our view of wickedness and the words that we use. I think verse 18 spells out a little bit clearer of what I was getting at with that, understanding the wickedness within us and how there is nothing good in us being defined here as the flesh, being defined here as the sin nature. I think that's an important definition for us to understand because Paul has the desire to do good. That would be a good thing within him, denoting the the new man, the new self, And again, this is intention, not necessarily action. Jesus says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We've been given a new spirit, but our bodies are decaying away. It's a tension that we need to continue to wrestle with. And the more that we can live through the spirit, the more that we can have dependence on the spirit in our lives, the greater glory is going to be reflected in us for the Father. Now, the agony within this section that is so strongly felt and lived by us presently, the agony within this tension of I don't do what I ought to do, I do what I shouldn't. You know, we have this inability to rid ourselves from this sinful nature, and it frustrates us. It's maddening. You know, we, we try to do things on our own to rid this from our lives, but that's a legalistic attitude it's performance based and it just leads to death we try to work our way out of it just by being better doing more things just by saying stop it and we feel deeply the guilt and the pain of doing the things that we know are wrong knowing that we're hurting those that are closest to us with our sin and we're spiraling downward in this negative slide that just takes us deeper into shame into guilt and patterns and cycles that repeat into strongholds where we live and we walk in ways of defeat I can't do it I'm horrible I'm no good I'm a failure it's a rut that many of us can experience in our Christian lives Paul is describing something that many of us face we know that the law is good We know that the law is true and the law says thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Yet we have hateful thoughts, adulterous thoughts. Why? Because the flesh is tempting us to react and behave in ways that we're used to. We have an active enemy that seeks to devour us. We have to be aware that we'll never escape the temptations in this life. Temptation will be there. But as cr- Paul cr- cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Speaking about the flesh, speaking about sin nature, we know the answer the Sunday school answer in Jesus, right? We don't need another law. We don't need another formula to obey because that points us back to legalism, to the written code. What we need is deliverance from our Savior a Savior who just so happens to dwell within us. So we come to this crossroad of practicality, right? Well, we're in this struggle in life, and we read over this passage again. We hear a a message on it, and we're getting pumped up. Okay, we can do this. We'll get better this time. We can beat it. But how? How many of us are sitting there thinking, this sounds great, but practically, how can we do this? What's the, what's the formula? What's the plan? First, stop. Stop trying to be better and to do better. We need to renew our minds from that type of thinking because this is what Paul is saying. We cannot work our way to sanctification. Many times we just want Jesus to wave a wand and make things go away. I came to you, you forgave me my sins, my life should be better, right? I prayed for him to take this away, why isn't it gone? Maybe this praying thing doesn't work, maybe Jesus isn't strong enough to do it. I'm just going to have to face this all my life. All the attacks that I've gone through in my life as I've gone through this passage All attacks I'm sure I'm gonna continue to go through in these battles. Attacks I'm sure might be similar in your own life. But the thing that we need to understand is that we are dead to sin. And we are called to consider or to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Temptation is what's gonna be coming our way. And it's like this big gorilla or elephant that's walking around beside you. You pray in all sincerity. God, take this away. God, give me strength. Give me patience. And it's like this gorilla just smashes that right away and you respond in anger yet again. Or you feel that weakness come over you after you've just prayed for strength. It's in these moments, instead of feeling like a failure, instead of trying harder, we need to simply trust in Jesus. We need to rest in the grace of God and walk obediently. Now, all of those things can be buzzwords and platitudes, and I am the first one to say I hate platitudes. So let's give some meaning to what these means, what these phrases mean. So in a scenario, a temptation comes, and what do you, for lack of better words, do? When you're faced with a temptation You trust what the word says. The truth of the word that you have in front of you. You rest in what Jesus has said. You want to blow up in anger at someone. You want to go to that website. You want to covet or worship some other thing than God. You want to be jealous. All of these things are tempting you. And the spirit within you can give you the strength of the word and what the word says. Because the word is a lamp unto my feet. To where a thousand times a day, you're tasked with these decisions of where to step. Your flesh is going to be tempted to move to the right or the left. The enemy doesn't care which direction you go. The Spirit is going to be guiding you forward. It's in those moments where we have to consider ourselves dead to sin, so that we're not listening to the temptations, but alive to Christ, obeying what He says. So you find the things that you struggle with. Anger. What does the Bible say about anger? And you memorize these verses so that in those moments, the Spirit can pull it to your mind and you can recite these verses a thousand times a day that for the thousand times that you want to blow up in the day. You, know, you, you have a problem with lust. You have a problem with jealousy. You have a problem with coveting things. You find the truth of the word and you rest in what that says. So when the temptation comes to mind, just as Jesus was tempted, you respond with the word of God. You're resting on what he has said. Instead of trying to do this in your own power and your own strength. And you can think a thousand times a day. In all honesty, it's probably light. It's probably more like 10,000 times a day you're going to have these decisions that you have to make, the steps that you're going to take. And it can seem exhausting, like really a thousand times I have to battle this today. Yeah. But you were faced with that decision of where you want to step to the right, to the left or forward. You're faced with those decisions of who you want to trust in in those moments, and it can seem exhausting. But as we've been going through this series, my hope is that you want that, you desire that closer walk with God. To do that, you have to begin making those steps, keeping in step with the Spirit like a toddler, taking baby steps here and there down the path. And over time, as you're taking the right steps, the attraction of those temptations dwindles. But the temptations are still there. You're never going to be out of the clear. So as Ephesians says, you know, we're not to get lax in understanding that there is a battle among us and that we need to be wearing the armor of God. We need to understand how the enemy is going to be attacking us. We need to celebrate the victories as we experience those for sure. But realize just because you have a victory doesn't mean that the battle's done. Most of the time, right after I have a victory, that's when I get attacked even harder because the enemy doesn't want to lose you. He doesn't want you to get back to that same, that right path. He wants to keep you over here because that's where you're ineffective as a believer. That's where you're not believing. That's not where you're not having faith. That's when you're down in the dumps. That's where you're not having the fruit of the Spirit, where you're not living in joy, peace, and patience. The end victory is determined, but we cannot get lazy. The race is finished when he calls us home or when he comes for his church. And we battle every day for that. Every day we get to know the love of God. and We have an enemy that wants to separate us from that. It's a struggle. It's a battle. It's the part of the Christian life where the rubber meets the road, where it's practical, where it's not just theory and theology. It's the hardships, it's the trials. It's the day in and the day out. And I understand you might be wanting an easier fit way and a quick fix for some of these things. Many of us are battle-worn and tired. Life doesn't give us much of a break. But these battles need to start and end with Jesus on our minds, meaning he is our go-to. So we have to spend time with him in our devotional lives. Our prayer times, our Bible studies, coming to church, having your community of believers that are around you. All of these things help to fill you with the truth so that when you're going into battle, you are equipped, you are prepared. Your action is trusting in God. And that looks a little bit differently in everybody's situations. But as you're trusting in God, you're resting on the truth of the word of God. We, we give thanks to Jesus, just as Paul cries out, thanks be to God, because he gives us life. He gives us the Holy Spirit and a new nature. He has given us the victory so that our minds can be renewed, and he gives us the hope in this battle for life, for salvation, for justification. And as Philippians says, he who began a great work in you is faithful to complete it. He will see you through the sanctifying process. So today, I just wanted to encourage you to know, for you to know that you're not alone in struggling. We're all going through different battles. Many times we're doing it alone. Because again, church, community, relationships, takes time. difficult you don't want to open up because shame guilt failures even in our mindsets we're still legalistic we need to rest in the grace of God more we need to experience that more as a community because yes many of us are isolated many of us are walking this battle alone and that makes it harder. We've been given each other for a purpose to equip, to edify, to glorify God. I, I enjoy being able to worship with you all each Sunday because it feeds my soul. Hearing everybody sing, hearing everybody's prayers, because it helps me. And that's selfish, sure. I'll, I'll own that. But it's awesome because it's giving God glory. We need to remember we are not alone in this we can lean on each other there's going to be hardships that come absolutely but we're not ill-prepared we have the word of god we have the spirit of god dwelling in us and we have each other let's pray father as we continue to dive into these subjects lord it is Difficult when we look at how to keep in step with you. With what your word says. I think it's mostly difficult, Lord, because we don't take the time necessary to be in your word. So I pray a conviction of your spirit upon us. Lord, that we would take your word seriously. That we, that we would know that that is where our answer lies. That's where the truth of what we're going through is. We know that your law is good. We know that it is holy. But Lord, there is a battle waging on in our bones. The flesh is trying to tell us to go these other ways where our spirit is telling us to go to the ways of you. So I pray just protection over our minds and hearts this week from the attacks of the enemies. That we would be able to see them clearly for what they are. And Lord, that your spirit would give us the truth in those moments. That we can experience some strong victories this week. And that we can be encouraged in our spirit. To continue keeping in step with you. In your name I pray. Amen.